When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to DNI Spy. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. As you know, by now, here at DNI Spy, we like to uncover what's really going on in the world of equality, diversity, and inclusion. And in today's episode, we're exploring language and, in particular, disability and language around disability. And we are joined by Kate Nash, OBE. Kate is a change leader with over 30 years of experience in working strategically to affect long-term changes in relation to disabled people. She's the creator and CEO of Purple Space, the world's only professional development membership hub for disability employee resource groups. And in 2017, she founded Purple Light Up, which takes place on the 3rd of December each year as a mark of respect to the UN International Day of Disabled People. We are so excited, beyond excited to have you here. So welcome, Kate. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Natasha, Julie. Absolutely wonderful to join you today. And uh, yeah, looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. And I'm going to kick it straight off with um, your book, because um, as we said just before we we started recording, we've both got a copy that has been already very well worn called Positively Purple, um, which is absolutely brilliant. But we're really keen to understand what what drove you to write it and maybe take the approach that you did with it. Oh, great question. Well, look, I'm a woman of a certain age. And as I say, (laughs) to friends and colleagues. I mean, I have been around the block a wee bit and I've had a, you know, a, a fantastic career working with incredible organisations who are driving systems and cultural change when it comes to employees with disability. And I, I think what was behind my thinking was the time was right to, yes, offer up a little bit of my story. The book is largely autobiographical, so it is about it's about me and my life and my experience with physical disability, but also about the story of cultural change and how increasingly uh, organizations are, of course, continuing to improve the top of the shop, the policies, the practices and the procedures. But we're starting to see a sea change in how employees with disability are building their inner confidence and resilience and leaning in and feeling a little bit more sassy and out mm-hmm. and proud about our experiences. So so that was why I thought the time had come. Yeah. So following on from that then, as people are getting more sassy and more out and proud about it, let's, let's talk about that language then. Because um, when we went out for season one of um, our new podcast of this, we asked people, what would you like us to talk about? And overwhelmingly, people were asking us about language. Oh, and yeah. it's such a massive topic that we thought, well, we can't do that in one session. We've got to break it down. So let's let's look at your book in particular. You uh, Quite early on in your book, you, you wrote um, a section around language called Mind Your Language. 
tell us about why you did that and what that talks about really yeah and um and you're so right julie it's such a sensitive topic it's it can be quite a hot potato in how people choose to get involved in the cultural change program when it comes to disability so why that chapter well i um as i say the the book is largely autobiographical and i have been involved uh in many ways in the development of legislative reform where it serves the interests of disabled people particularly in the uk but in also other parts of the world and i've seen the dynamic of change in how we choose to use language deliberately as a way of framing our experiences of disability so you know i'm quite a political animal you know back in the day in my career i was eyeballing ministers for a living not for the faint-hearted, <laughs> and I don't do that so much now. Um, but, you know, back in the day when we were trying to persuade, particularly UK Incorporated, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, feel uh, energetic about the need for equalities legislation, the Disability Discrimination Act, as we then knew it in '95. of course, all legislations have been harmonised. Um, but t to your question, you know, I, I think there's been lots of movement but between and across disabled people's groups and communities around the world. You know, on the one hand, you have, rightly, UN language that encourages employers to talk about people with disabilities, what we call people-first language. Um, but equally, there are parts of the world, particularly UK, which has been quite politicised, um, there are uh, lots of people with disabilities who prefer the terminology of disabled people. Mm. You know, I, I have my own personal preferences in terms of those two descriptors. Um, but for me, in writing the book and wanting to draw attention to the requirement for us to be confident in our experiences to support other people to make sense of our life experiences, I, I wanted to soften it. So that chapter, as you're, as you're describing, Julie, I'm saying this is about people with dyslexia. It's about people who are cancer survivors, people who may have dyspraxia, people who have mental health conditions. Um, and it's such a broad topic. Mm. It's important to reflect that people will have their personal choices and at the same time recognising that language is a pretty inadequate instrument to to summarize the different lived experiences of people anyway what did you make of the chapter i know you're i'm here to be interviewed by, by yourself <laughs> yeah what were your thoughts in that chat what did you like and what do you think people would be intrigued about well i i particularly picked up that that piece about people with disabilities or disabled people actually so i'm glad that you brought that up because um i was going to ask you about it because i my i would immediately ask you well what can a person who doesn't have a disability, what is the best way to therefore talk about somebody with a disability in, in the right respectful manner mm -hmm. and in the appropriate, appropriate context? Usually people, we, we like to think that people start from a good place and, want, and don't want to offend and, and want to, you know, to be as respectful as possible. Mm -hmm. But there is, there is that caution. So, I mean, I'd say back to you, Kate, you know, what should yeah. somebody say? Is it, with, is it yeah. with people with disabilities or is it disabled people? We, and adding to that, when we look at employee ne networks, which we'll come on to talk about, there's a lot of talk about ability. You know, they're not disabled networks. They are ability networks. So that's yeah. another word that we throw in. Yeah. 
It's a great question. You know, we a purple space, we use those two phrases interchangeably. Mm. So what okay. we're doing, and the reason why we do that is because we want to mark with respect the preferred language that the UN has encouraged us to use, the people first language, people with disabilities, and recognizing that uh, significantly large numbers, particularly global companies, will use that language. But we also wanted to respect those individuals who for individual political reasons choose to use the language of disabled people. and why that's the case is, and I'm going to use a, a provocative example here, <laughs> is that, you know, there are large cohorts of disabled people who feel that there's nothing add-on about our human experience. We don't talk about, for example, women as people with female bits. I'm being <laughs> naughty here, but there's nothing add-on about yeah. disability in relation to our lives. It's 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 integral to who we are as individuals. And of course, we carry many, many identities. Mm. You know, none of us are have, have one identity, whether that's about race, sex, sexuality, religion, and so on and so forth. So in terms of advice, I would say if if you know you're coming from a company that's still considering these things, you might want to use those two phrases interchangeably. If your employer preference is to use people with disabilities, then there'll be a reason behind that. Um, And yet, if either people within your business or for your own reasons, you prefer to describe yourself as a disabled person, that's my own personal preference, then it's just about acknowledging that. So it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) But to your point, nobody wants to offend Julie. You know. and, yeah, I like the fact that it, uh, to quote part, part of the book, it talks about um, that you know if you're tongue tied, you don't know what to say, you're scared of making a mistake. Don't worry, you're not alone. It's okay to make mistakes, and that's really important, isn't it? A hundred percent. You know, we I've been around the block, as I say, and I, I I've come across very very few people who deliberately want to offend. Maybe there's one or two politi- <laughs> politicians out there. Well, um, but the majority just want to connect and engage Natasha you were jumping in there I was just going to say I I think going back to what you just said about people you know kind of identifying with that disabled word like there is no add-on to it I almost feel like there is just this need to find other words because actually when you say the word disabled you still see and feel people flinch you know, it still feels like the word disabled, it isn't sexy enough. You know, we've seen it, um, we've seen it with the kind of advancement of people focusing on neurodiversity. Actually, neurodiversity has become this kind of sexy hot topic that we're all focusing on and thinking about. And, you know, all of a sudden we're kind of really, okay, we can talk about disability because actually neurodiversity is an invisible disability and it's a bit sexier. And actually we're kind of, always I don't know I think people it feels as though people are still very much dancing around the word disabled if I'm honest yeah I think there's a lot of truth in what you say you know we do see a lot of you know you mentioned earlier that there are a lot of uh, employee resource groups business resource groups networks that choose to focus on the word ability Mm. and what, what there's nothing inherently wrong in doing that I think that you know the use of language and how we connect with the issue of disability we make sense of that and, and we use different language at different times mm. but you know in my in my first book that I wrote secrets and big news I use the example 
I think it's, is it Macbeth, the Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. The lady yep. doth protest yes. too much. <laughs> you know, what I mean by that, we see lots of network names where it's just ability yeah. or dis in lowercase and they're yeah. big shouty capital letters ability. Mm. And my point is not to to call that out as a bad thing. I think that's a human thing, mm. you know, and it's often the case that people with disabilities feel they have to overprove themselves. So it's completely understandable. But, yeah, it's about, as I, as you say, it, it's it, it's calling out that sometimes we dance around that. You know, mm. disability is a political experience. Yeah. And, and following on from that, another part of your book talk, talks about um, how knowing, it says, knowing how awful something is rarely leads to systemic change. New stories need to do more than just share statistics. So that brings that to life again, that, that language piece. Yeah, absolutely. Again, and it's, you know, going back to Purple Light Up that you mentioned, Purple Light Up movement is a movement of positivity. You know, the, one of the reasons why I did that straight tweet all those years ago <laughs> um, was because, you know, you jump into any social media uh, medium and you punch in the words disability and you really ought to be prepared to be gloomy within yeah, a nanosecond yeah. before you can finish a cup of coffee. You know, it really <laughs> is gloomy. So it, it is about bringing this to life and it's about recognising the story of disability. Yes, it's a story of challenge. It can be a story of struggle. It can often be a story of poverty mm. uh, and injustice, but it's equally a story of positivity and what you learn about yourself, what you learn about others. It's a story of naughtiness and sassiness. It's, it's like any other human being. It's mm. a rich and a varied story. So purple light up. And the work of ERGs, I think now, is really about about amplifying the mm. good within mm. our life stories. And we do want to come on to ERGs and, and Purple Light Up. I just want to ask one question about misdisinformation. Yes. Tell us about that. That's your new word, is it? <laughs> yes, I go around inventing and stealing words. <laughs> I love one today from <laughs> Diane Lightfoot, the wonderful oh, Diane Lightfoot. We love Diane. She's using the word usual rather than normal. She uses it in a really clever way. So, yes, this misinformation, um, you know, we, we know about, you know, how sometimes uh, information can be, can, be, can be used to display things that are not factual. Mm. You know, the information can be used in different ways. And we constantly are barraged by the, I think, the insuffering volume of stories about disability mm. that are negative. You know, not enough employers, employers, not enough employers are delivering workplace adjustments. There are not enough people at senior C-suite level. And my point is that these are not factually correct and it's not proper to not focus on some of those stories but I tell you what if that's all we hear as human beings um, it's not a very sexy topic to get involved with it's just gloomy and one feels depressed one feels infantilized one feels um, unable to take action so this misinformation I use that because I think we now have to think very carefully about our own role in social change and if all we can do when we scroll through twitter or linkedin is to click a like or recirculate a post about something negative about our lives we have to look long and hard at ourselves and ask ourselves why did we choose to do that as opposed to searching perhaps a little longer 
for the good stories, the things that lead us to action, the great things that different organisations are doing. And on that on that point, Kate, obviously people could be following you on social media because you're putting lots and lots of great um, great things out there and, and purple light up, like we say. But if you were to say to people, do you know, because we, we, you know, we talk about this a lot, you know, go and do your own research, do your own reading, do your own learning. Who would you maybe point people to, you know, are, are there some great people that, that could be followed and, and kind of get that better source of information and more uplifting stories from, do you yeah. think? There are some really great young social media influencers. Um, those that work with uh, Purple Goat, for example, yeah. uh, the wonderful Martin Sibley, uh, there are some fantastic. Sometimes they are, um, you know, they're advertising products and services uh, such as the social media influencers, Tesco's, for example, or Kurt Geiger, and they, you know, there's this wonderful model, amputee model who looks provocatively. I talk about it in the book at the camera, yeah. and she dares us. You know, she, she with you with youth and beauty and one leg as an amputee. And she dares us to part with our money, and we do, to buy <laughs> great shoes. So, so to your point, there, there are many out there, and I would, I would focus on some of those that are delivering good news stories around what organizations are doing, the products mm. that they're delivering, because they tend to deliver better, more life-affirming, more realistic stories about our lives. Yeah. Thank you. So, so what role then do you think, following on from that, uh, does, does the media play in language around disability? A huge role. And I'm lucky to be of an age, Julie, dare <laughs> I say it, <laughs> where I've seen, I've seen such positive change in terms of the media. Um, you know, re just recently, for example, in fact, next month, February edition of Good Housekeeping magazine, for example, um, I, there is an article, I mean, the women who lead section, and I, you know, I talk about my experiences, things that I've achieved. And I compared that interview with an interview I did some decades ago in my mid, maybe to late 20s with, a, I think, a woman's own magazine. And when that magazine came out, it, I felt crestfallen and crushed because the media used language of um, the then editor uh, that I was crippled with arthritis and um, and and yet this time round maybe it's because I'm a little bit longer in the tooth I'm a little bit older I feel able to to ask that particular editor to use language that fits the way I want to be described um, and it was a much more positive article but that's a very micro story to your, to your question the media I think the media is delivering some really sophisticated stories of individuals and processes and systems the media has a huge role to play. You both work in a company that has a fantastic opportunity to deliver more sophisticated stories about our lives in a way that turn heads, etc. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm quite encouraged, although I do talk about the dismiss information and there are some real downsides. Mm -hmm. And we know social media uh, is not just a force for good. It can be a source of, of real harm. But the opportunity and the role that the media has in describing our lives now is richer, more meaningful, more sophisticated. Yeah, I've seen real change. I think following on from that, um, later in the book, you talk about um, storytelling. So just kind of following on from that kind of storytelling part. 
Um, and that when we tell our stories, we help our employers become more informed. And I guess that's a great way as well to think about language, about how employees like to be spoken about, referred to. That's really powerful, isn't it, for that kind of storytelling? Yeah, very much so. Storytelling, you know, obviously I'm a great fan of storytelling and purple stories in terms of how we deliver our leadership lessons through the year for ERG leaders. We're now a community of 2,000 ERG leaders operating in 56 countries in every continent. Wow. It's a massive community of game changers uh, made possible, I think, by the door opening DEI professionals who are making it easier for people to raise their voices and articulate their needs. Um, so, so storytelling, it's a wonderful tool to spotlight uh, things that need to be changed, not just in the individual micro stories but in the bigger stories yeah and we're seeing a real you know um, push a real movement for people to share those stories uh, we're a fan of helping people to think about what you want people to think to feel and to do mm. as a consequence of those stories because I think that's what's really important it's also uh, about identifying your own brand isn't it um, and you know I've heard you talk about this in the past um, when you're talking about a disability for the first time just saying the word out loud sort of forces you to confront what has happened or address any fears that you have and that's it can be a pretty frightening time if you're not within your family you, you know you're at work confines uh, it's so true you know what you touch on it's a very powerful point the we see within our community, we tend to work with the ERG leaders who themselves are connected with large communities of employees with disability. And the narrative that they often share with us is how hard it is, as you say, to say those words for the first time, whether that's to a colleague that you might sit next to, either physically or virtually. It may be a team or a co-worker. It may be a line manager. It might be the chief executive if you meet him or her or they in the lift. And just to share an aspect of your story like that takes often huge courage. And we often forget how hard it is for people to share that. A piece of research we did just a few years ago, we learned that individuals can sometimes take up to two to three years to even ask for a workplace accommodation wow. or adjustment after diagnosis so that just tells you mm. how hard it is sometimes for us to frame our experiences to label them and brand them as you say mm. part of our high performing brand as well as then make and ask without taking away from our worth mm -hmm. so you mentioned um that you you made you tweeted um <laughs> and it started a huge global movement tell us tell us more about that well, I've been watching, um, so I think it was 2017, two years after Purple Space was created. And uh, Purple Space, our brand, why we use the color purple as part of our brand name. Um, we didn't invent the connection between the color purple and people with disabilities, but we certainly were the first to notice that it was becoming increasingly popular, not just in the UK, but globally. Uh, so we chose to do something about that. So it was it was in writing secrets and big news. We were talking to two and a half thousand uh, disabled people in that piece of research, and we asked them their views about whether they thought the time was right to use color 
as a metaphor for uh, a movement and a people. They loved it. They loved it. And we started to hear things. Oh, I'd love my chief executive to be on a panel <laughs> talking about purple talent. Um, and we, they were hypothesizing how it might sometimes be easier to talk about purple talent rather than people with disabilities or people with purple or I'm being naughty here. <laughs> so, so yes, 2017, July, I had obviously worked with in, over some years with uh, colleagues uh, um, who have worked in the LGBTQ plus movement for some for some years. Mm. And I've been scrolling Twitter and notice how beautifully the use of the rainbow flag is used as an emblem, as a metaphor for both the struggle as well as the sophisticated, beautiful story of the LGBTQ plus community. So my straight tweet, now I may have had a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Always no. the best tweets. <laughs> Tell anybody on this podcast. And I, I, I sent a tweet out and it, it was a very s simple tweet. It was is now the time to bring together uh, people with disabilities, the colour purple and the 3rd of December. You know, is it time now to bring a sense of community and use the 3rd of December in a way to celebrate the economic contributions and not just a story of deficit, but could there be a coming together of ERG leaders around the world and of course our allies and champions. And it just took off. Yep, we had some uh, parliamentarians, some MPs who jumped in and it just took off. And the next minute, the Purple Light Up movement was born. So tell us what it's like now then, sort of how many years later you've oh. gone from um, a tweet to tell us. Yeah, it's it's a it's a global movement. So uh, there are many employers and individuals and organisations who get involved around the world. Uh, we work closely with different partners around the world to spread the word. Um, it's it is a mark of respect. So we want to do nothing and will never do anything to take away the uh, the the great mark of respect for International Day of Persons with Disabilities and. You know, we check in with the ILO and the wonderful work of Jürgen and Stefan Trommel there. So it's, it's mark of respect. Uh, it's a discrete movement to celebrate the economic contribution of people with disabilities. We often, as we've talked about, hear about the deficit. So this is about calling out the number of employees that work around the world. It's about noticing the great things that employers are doing to make it easier to build an inclusive working world for employees with disability. And it's a great way to of our champions and our allies too, to share the things that they do to support the creation of that working world. So I've lost, I, I had the statistic in front of me. I can't remember how <laughs> many, 40 million, I think, tweets alone. And then of course the LinkedIn. Wow. So yeah, it's a, it's a cacophony of noise. Um, and uh, we, we encourage our own members to produce short videos, what we call leader to leader, where the Disability Employee Resource Group may have a short uh, conversation with either the chief executive or the C-suite leader, uh, and they post those online. And it's about how they're driving change together. And some iconic buildings have been lit up, haven't they? The Shard, mm. um, yep. Niagara Falls, Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Australian Parliament. Uh, Blackpool Tower. I wasn't going to mention Blackpool Tower. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's wonderful. You know, the iconic buildings that we've seen. I'm always moved by that. You know, some you know, some of those buildings we all know, as you say, yeah. Niagara Falls and um, Sydney 
opera house, etc. It is it is absolutely breathtaking. Um, and but for, for me, it's the micro stories. I go around saying it's not about the light bulbs, and <laughs> you know, ultimately, we do have to support employers who are thinking deeply about sustainability policies. So, you know, for those that can, and there's no extra cost, then it's a beautiful, emblematic way of building the movement. And and others will do it at a at a different way. Some will just change the color of their homepage, for example, or their intranet site, or their 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 Twitter handle, or they might dress up in purple and take selfies and post them on social media, LinkedIn. So whatever organizations do to mark that, and we don't prescribe it, we very deliberately do not prescribe this and instead focus the minds that this is a celebration of talent and showcase that talent. Yeah, I know that um, the the REACH buildings um, were lit up with Manchester Evening News and the, the Daily Mirror and, and the Express, so all our printing press sites. So. That was something that you know everybody could get involved in, which was you know it, it sounds really simple as an idea just to turn something purple, and a lot of work goes into <laughs> it. Um, but actually, it's um, it, it it just brought so many people together. I was going to say, I think actually um, focusing with, on disability in an organisation actually is a unifier. I think I've seen more people come together and embrace when because. We often, you know, we've talked about it before. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, we always get that go-to around race and gender. It always happens. We go to race, gender, ethnicity. But actually, disability is a real unifier with with all people. People really resonate with it. And so actually, you can very quickly get people to, to, to start thinking more inclusively, really get behind a strategy because they're just a bit more kind of linked into it, which is just interesting, I think. Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. And I think sometimes I think sometimes our allies and champions need an excuse. They want something yeah. to do. You know, we see those huge growth in purple ally programs yeah. um, because they're offered ideas, a smorgasbord, a shopping list of things that they can do, not yeah. just on the 3rd of December, but that's throughout the year to display their support and mm. to display their, their leadership and their yeah. desire for change. And, and as you say, Natasha, this is a subject that touches so many people's lives, mm. even if we're not directly impacted by disability. Maybe that we have a child with a disability or a niece or a nephew, or mm. we're grappling with uh, dementia needs of our parents. So it, it is a subject that, that does touch our lives. And sometimes people need permission mm. to, to get involved and get excited. Yeah, and you touched on a good point there around um, around children, actually. And it's something that's fairly topical, so we won't catch you too off guard here. But um, we have a guest, um, a couple of guests, um, who came on the podcast a few weeks ago um, called the Atwell Bryce family. And they talked to us about being um, LGBTQ plus parents um, and adoption. But their um, twin boys are, are disabled. And um, actually, they're just campaigning because the NHS labels them um, I think they use the word retardation actually still in the medical profession and they're trying to campaign to obviously change that labelling and just kind of tie it into the language piece. I just wondered if you had any thoughts at all or you kind of wanted to wanted to kind of give a lens on that. Oh, I would say power to their elbow. That's what I would say. <laughs> um, you know, p- parents 
My mum keeps threatening to write the counter book, by the way. So I talk <laughs> about like to my read wonderful, <laughs> yeah. wonderful mother. You do. And it is a love story, although I, I do talk provocatively about something she said to me many years ago. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the book, I come full circle to share that ultimately uh, I had two incredible parents who wanted the best for me and couldn't, like me, see my way through. They didn't know how I was going to navigate what was going to be a really inelegant, inhospitable, inaccessible environment for me. So but to your question, I have seen and had the privilege of working with the most extraordinary parents in the employers community. And the work that you're doing at Reach, I think is wonderful and you're huge fans of networks. But we do see those passionate parents who are allies and champions and they want to take what they learn through the dialogue of people with disabilities and they don't get it all all the time but by us boy do they go back and then beat up social services or the <laughs> nhs or schools in a good way yeah because they want the very very best from their from their children so yeah i would just say yeah we're, we're, we're lucky to have parents who are now growing up with the backdrop of legislation mm. and, and a sassier community so we can only expect other greater things Absolutely. So let's let's move back to business just for a second. Um, what levers do you think businesses can pull to support their either disabled um, workforce or even their their customers in terms of accessibility? Is there anything that you've seen work? Oh, I think um, there's two parts to that. There's the kind of internal building a great workforce and thinking about how it's possible to build an inclusive working world, supporting your own employees with disabilities uh, to deliver their, their, their talent at work. So some of the good things that we're seeing there is some really strong, deep dive, constant reviews of the workplace adjustment process and the accommodation process. Uh, I was talking earlier uh, on another webinar how it's very common for us, of course, to see, you know, very easy to access, for example, maternity leave policies. So you know, as a woman, if one is pregnant, you inform your employer 15 weeks in advance of your maternity leave. Um, and it all just falls into place because babies apparently mostly don't wait. I know one or two <laughs> wait, however. Um, and it's kind of, it's normalized, or as Diana would call it, usualized. Um <laughs> But to go back to, to disability, we don't always see standardised workplace adjustments. We don't always see an elegant, easy to use, uh, very visible workplace adjustment um, policy and process within within a, 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 an organisation's portal. So those are really best in class are those essentialising their scheme, thinking deeply about service level agreements, um, enabling the process to be created co-produced with their employee resource group, asking the views of their own people about uh, how and where they might uh, access their workplace adjustment. So that's, that's, I think, a basic. It's a fundamental. There are many, many, many other things that employers can do internally. But I think if you haven't got the basics right, that's where you're found wanting. So that, that really is where it stops and starts. In terms of other things, well, of course, Products and services is also an incredible place to start whatever type of organization you are, whether you're a media organization, whether you are ICT, 
whether you are a, a pharmaceutical company, a retail bank, etc. So always thinking about your end users and seeing how you can improve the accessibility of your products and services. Um, I'm going to use GSK as an example. GSK, of course, has done a lot of work in terms of its workplace adjustment process inside. But I think in turn, they're starting to see some really good kickback from that in terms of how they think about packaging, how they think about delivery of those medicines, etc. So, you know, there's uh, some fantastic examples across the piece. Um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, one poor example, I would say, in, in your book that I'd, probably yeah. let's just cover in terms of um, interviews when yeah. um, recruiters um, are and hiring managers are interviewing candidates who have a disability um, and you, you have experienced interviewers in your previous life in your earlier life for you, you you had your own business um of what what can't you do you know um yeah. and, and you talk about it's interesting i can't speak mandarin and i can't i can't change you know can you change your light bulb i can't uh, you know so and i think that is really important around that hiring piece yeah uh, good call julie yeah you're actually right i tell the story of when i was interviewed and um i'd uh, i was walking i think with a with a with a, a walking stick or a crutch at that time. I'd had a hip replaced or a knee replaced. And um, I had a, an interview that I thought was going quite well. <laughs> <laughs> However, the, kind of, the punchline, the question at the end was, well, what can't you do? You know, the irony being, you, you, know, you seemingly across, coming across as someone who can, who can do this job, but what can't you do? And, you know, what do you do at that moment? Judicious use of sarcasm, as I call it. <laughs> um, I wasn't old enough and I wasn't confident enough to use sarcasm as a retort. But of course, you know, outside I was kicking myself because where do you go with that question? As you say, there's so many things that many of us can't do. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, the mood music now, let me, it, what I hear in terms of our community. So, as I say, we work with many companies, 2,000 leaders. And we conservatively estimate that we touch the lives of 1 million employees with disability through our membership. And the mood music is that there's a lot that has improved in terms of the recruitment piece, but there's still a lot more that mm. needs to be done. And while that type of question is simply illegal now, you know, you, know, you can't be as blatant um, as that, there are unfortunately some subliminal messages, I think, that do come through at interviews mm. or... Uh, there's not enough good quality information given in advance of interviews um, and or indeed on the onboarding phase. Uh, a lot of individuals will not secure the workplace adjustments that they might need up front. So, yes, there's absolutely more to be done. And it's, it's not a, a delicious, rosy picture out there. It's a better picture. But there's certainly a lot that still could be done on the recruitment page, Julie. And I think you, you definitely make a great point, okay? And I think when we then move on to when people are onboarded into an organisation, I think what we saw through COVID and the pandemic, we saw that actually anybody can work from anywhere really effectively. What that's That, for me, is the biggest learning that we had out of the pandemic. And now we've come, you know, what are we, 12, 18 months post-pandemic now? And actually now we're starting to see organisations do this whole, you know, we want you in the office three days a week, you need to be in a building and actually I'm that really concerns me from a disability perspective because 
actually why 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 you know and I'm really I'm really afraid of the knock-on effect it's going to have because I think we'd gotten to a place where we were accepting that people could be geographically anywhere we were opening ourselves up to the best talent you know I sat in um an early careers outreach kind of session um gosh about over 12 months ago now and one of the young people that joined that session virtually was disabled and they were in a wheelchair and actually their comment to us was I wouldn't have done this and I wouldn't have got involved if it wasn't for the fact it was virtual and remote and so that's what I'm really really worried and mindful about and I just I just want to know and understand where people are making those decisions and how we can kind of I don't know like step in a little bit because I'm worried about those decision makers and who's influencing them yeah do you know you're right to be worried Natasha and I I join you in that I'm genuinely you know fearful that we will lose some of the gains who knew that it was going to take a pandemic Mm. to be able to prove in an instant yeah thousands millions of us could work relatively productively Mm. you know if you go past those first few months of distress and anxiety and confusion and kerfuffle etc and while none of us would ever want that back again Mm. there was a steady um uh and slow and deep and profound understanding about some of the gains in our lives i heard a myriad of stories of individuals with disability who had gained a lot of time that they would normally use on managing their impairment. So, you know, it's all that stuff that's unseen, you know, Mm. the things like getting dressed and getting to work and some of the impairment management stuff that is really not seen by a company. Mm. And suddenly they would, you know, people would get an extra hour, an extra couple of hours, and then you add on that some of the travel time. So, yeah, like you. Now... You know me, I'm a positive person. You are, very optimistic. There is in the question, the clue is in the title of the book. But, you know, the wonderful scheme, I'm sure many of your listeners will know the um, Generation uh, V scheme, the Generation Valuable scheme, wonderful, wonderful organisation headed up by the incredible Caroline Casey. And this this new scheme where chief execs and C-suite leaders will be mentoring large cohorts of mentees I would, I'm not a betting woman, but I would put money on the fact that they are likely to serve this, the necessity to reserve and preserve and protect some of those aspects of remote working. Mm. Because like you, I would hate to see that denigrated. I would, I would hate to see some of the gains that we've gotten, yeah. not just from disabled people, but others who yeah. want us to work. So I think you're right to be fearful, but let's not let that paralyze us. And instead, see the opportunities where we can surface those fantastic benefits. We're coming to the close of our episode. Um, we always close asking our guest uh, for a top tip or an inclusive action because we say here that inclus- inclusion is an action. Um, and if you're going to be inclusive, then you've got to do something about it. So we would ask you the same question What's your top tip or inclusive action that you'd like to share, Kate? I'd keep it really simple. I would make a commitment, almost like a New Year commitment. It's the 25th of January as we do this podcast. <laughs> however, whenever and however and where, wherever you listen, I would make a commitment to meet one more person with a disability and ask them what you need to learn in order to do your job well. So, of course, you'd have to give a little of yourself. 
So it could be an employee, it could be someone that you meet at a virtual or indeed a physical setting. If you go to a gig, disability gig, it could be your niece or your nephew if it's at a, a personal level. But, you know, if you're going to make a commitment to community and communities of difference, why not ask that question? What do I need to do differently and better in my job? What can you teach? What can I learn from you? So it's a little bit of a micro reverse mentoring action. Lovely. Love that. I'm going to take that away. Micro reverse mentoring. So another another new word for the, for today. I won't steal it. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Kate, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really gorgeous. So thank you. Thank you very much. And good luck with the book. Huge pleasure. Lovely to be with you. And thank you for your your own time and uh, passion for this subject. It's so much appreciated. Not by me, but by millions. So thank you so much. Thank you. feeling positively purple are you that was great conversation with uh tinge in your hair yeah kate <laughs> nash obe yeah that was a really really nice um conversation it just reminded me actually i went to a massive event once in willis towers watson uh, auditorium there's about 500 people mm. and i knew the speaker right. and he's really he's really nice um and um and he was dressed head to toe in purple um so um they came they came to the mic you know do your questions and all that gumph. and uh, so i said oh mark i love the fact that you've dyed your hair purple as well and he hadn't <laughs> and all that in front of everybody <laughs> Oh dear! Oh God, I've forgotten that. Sorry. Getting so the, you you uh, haven't got a purple tinge around you. Sorry. Oh thanks. I'm just glowing. <laughs> sorry. Um, back to Kate. Sorry. Yes. Back to Kate. Language, in particular, disability. Um, thoughts, feelings. Um, I'm glad that we've broken language up into multiple episodes because it's so so big. I um I also loved some of the words that Kate was using around disability, like and kind of being quite cheeky and talking about sassiness. Sassiness. Um, I loved, and we didn't really explore it. We probably should have, but around kind of that terminology of not using the word normal, but using the word usual. I kind of touched on that very mm. lightly of somebody else, but Diane Lightfoot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go on. Sorry. I'm no. Yeah. Excitedly cutting in. Sorry. No. 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 Yeah. So it's um. I actually thought maybe we could ask Diane to come on. A podcast at some point because um, oh, little yeah. shout out there indeed um but i loved um that making a commitment very simple in terms of inclusion um from, from a top tip or inclusive action um and my one overriding uh thought is sassiness same as you mm. key key word to take away i think i'm going to use that for the next yeah. few days start integrating it more into my day to day language <laughs> <laughs> you got very low sassiness at the moment. <laughs> I have actually today. Sorry, I'll up, I'll up the up, sassiness. Up your sassiness. Um, but no, I I think it was a um, really good conversation and some some good things to take away. And I think for anybody that's listening and engaging around the topic of disability, I think that piece around you know following the people people like Kate to be able to get that insight and fresh thinking. Yeah, and I mean, she's been in the game for decades, so there is a lot to learn from Kate. Um, I mean, and that that the Purple Ally program 
was mm. was a brand new one on me today. Um, I think it's and in her book, she talked about um, chief execs having um, uh, listening groups mm. with anybody who is disabled in their organisation. And I think there is this, you know, these, these things don't have to be like proper complicated, do they? They can just be really simple yeah. um, and effective. I, they are, and I think that is important, but I think Dr. Judy's pulling her face at me now. But I do think there has to be follow-up. Like we can't just do, we can't just do certain things and then not follow up and not measure any true. form of success with it. Very true. That's nice of you, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Good, episode Good episode and wonderful to see um, Kate. Yes, definitely. You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.